0: Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of our mainline podcast. I am joined again today by Sinotalk. He is our Indo-Pacific desk chief for the Bulletin from the Borderlands. We are talking about some China-related issues, talking about uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken's recent trip to Beijing, as well as Chinese influence operations in the Pacific, and a couple other topics. So, hope you guys really enjoy this episode. It's great to have Sinotalk on again. Before we get started, of course, this podcast and all of our other podcasts are part of Northern Provisions, LLC. Check out the Lethal Minds Journal, a veteran and active duty publication focusing on foreign and military affairs, art and culture. Take a look at the journals bulletin from the Borderlands. That's a bi-weekly foreign affairs publication from multiple talented intelligence analysts and independent journalists. Head over to LethalMindsJournal.Substack.com or instagram at lethal.minds.journal to see more also please consider supporting us on patreon at patreon.com slash analyze educate or you can buy us a coffee at ko-fi.com slash analyze educate as well and we will head into the podcast okay i'm here with Sino talk how's it going man Doing good man and you Doing pretty good. I'm I'm ready to get into this. It's been a while since we've had you on the podcast, so it's good to have you back on again, talking about some some China related stuff. Okay. And so I think the first topic we want to get into is this um, this trip that Secretary of State Antony Blinken took to Beijing last week. And this, you could correct me if I'm wrong, but this was initially supposed to happen. I want to say late February or in March, and then it actually got postponed after that um, whole thing happened with the Chinese spy balloon, and it was shot down. And Blinken like postponed his trip, and now it finally happened. I think people were um, expecting something major to happen in in like the U.S. China relationship for some reason, but that that didn't really pan out. Um, and I think me and you were pretty much on the same page as to, you know, thinking we didn't really expect anything major out of this.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was just one of the things in which people had a lot of, a lot of high expectations, but the reality of the trip meant, that clearly that clearly wasn't the case. Um, actually the, uh, the expectations were low because apparently in the lead up for the trip. The Chinese actually asked for the uh, Secretary of Treasury and Commerce to visit instead of Blinken. Um, so
0: really, so not in addition to but instead of
1: yeah, and uh Biden and the Biden administration sent Blinken, and you know that's the reason why he had the odd receptions and visit that he had,
0: okay, yeah. They- when you say that something comes to mind to me um when you know the biden administration like first came into into office and blinken had that first meeting with some chinese officials in alaska and it was just like this super awkward experience for like everybody involved and I don't know, I feel like since then, uh, they've maybe maybe not been too fond of Blinken in specific.
1: No, you, you're right. I mean, it's more of a, it's more of a, it's more of the administration's actions and policies toward China than, than just Blinken himself. You just have to understand that they thought, China actually thought that it would be a reset of relations between the two countries when Biden came into power way that wasn't the case if anything he was he actually uh, presented a tougher policy uh tougher policies than uh, trump to have, trump did during his administration so yeah, it's, it's very interesting oh sorry i was going to say it's very interesting to see to see that continuing dynamic especially now
0: yeah it's very interesting i mean uh me personally when i thought biden came into power i i did think we we're gonna see maybe not a, a full reset of relations with China, but he would certainly, um, he being Biden, kind of like soften the the rhetoric and and try and improve our relationship with China a little bit more. I didn't really think he would continue on a on a similar path that Trump did when he was in office, um, and and it looks like that's actually exactly what he's done.
1: Yeah. No. Um, I mean. It was. It's one of those things in which I think Biden and other senior officials they probably had a moment of understanding of where China is versus the United States, and so they kind of they understood that China wants to replace us, and they want they actually I believe actually they outlined this. In a meeting they had with, I believe, Trump. Trump and uh, HR Masters. Mm, yeah, McMaster. Um, McMaster. Um, he actually wrote about this in his book when he said that, you know, we don't, whenever she's uh, passed the uh, I believe it was either she or Li Ka Chong, the now former premier, he said that we don't need you anymore matter of fact we're gonna start treating you like like just any other country like you'll just make stuff you provide us with material and you'll and you'll um and you know you'll buy our shit and or buy our buy our, buy our products and just like it
0: and you and you think that uh the Biden administration, its like high ranking officials, didn't really have this realization until after they came into power.
1: I think they probably thought that they could change it, but then right right after you know they came into power and looked at like what the Trump administration had concerning how why they took some of the uh, policy uh, policy courses that they did. They came to understand that we need to do this now rather than later when China becomes even more of a threat.
0: Yeah. Do you do you think that first meeting that they had in Alaska? Do you think that that really kind of drove it into their brains like this? This is how China sees their relationship with us, uh, and it is not how we perceived before. This yeah,
1: meeting? I think so because I think. And again, going back to my previous point, that they, they probably thought that China they didn't really believe that. They didn't really believe that China or the United States is on the terminal decline and the West as well and that they're the newest Senate power, not only within the Asia Pacific region, but you know globally as well. And so I think from their perspective, the Alaska meeting actually did drive it into actually was the final nail in the coffin for them to where they understood that, hey, China is not our friend anymore. It's not like what appeared in uh, in the Barack Barack Obama administration, when we thought we can control China's peaceful rise in the world, even Mm -hmm. though they did a lot of shady stuff during that administration. But now, but I think the Alaska meeting was the final nail in the coffin that made them, that drove them to not only revitalize, but toughen a lot of Trump's uh, previous policies, including a trade war, keeping the trade war on, um, and enacting uh, uh, expert, expert controls on advanced uh, microchips. Not only that, but just to increase just make it really hard for them to drive in general.,
0: oh, it's okay, man the the more money we throw at China, the sooner they're gonna liberalize, right? That's how yeah that
1: <laughs> yeah, that that was one of the things about it and the fact that you know ironically enough that that was u s policy is the fact that maybe we give them the benefit of market capitalism
0: mm-hmm.
1: then Maybe they can democratize. But Tiananmen Square proved that no amount of capital, mar- capital, uh, capitalism they get will mean that they were democratized. Not only that, but Xi Jinping, as you can see right now, he, with Xi Jinping's actions or since 2013, I believe, he doesn't believe in, in straight market capitalism. He believes in very much a state capitalist system that is more influenced by the state, uh, by the state, uh, by state owned enterprises rather than private companies that actually did drive a lot of China's growth until she destroyed it.
0: Interesting. So you think he's really, uh, stifled the growth of their economy since coming into oh. office
1: oh yeah he 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 did he um there's a reason why a lot of uh, there's been a 10-year decline within ggp's uh, time of power is because a lot of his policies that he did began some began in began the economic slowdown in some form or the other but not only that, but you know, after COVID, but zero COVID, COVID, his zero COVID policies, and then not only that, but his crackdown on the tech companies, and beginning with Jack Ma's little getaway, who will quote unquote. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's one of the things we don't like to talk about. What happened to Jack Ma? Right, yeah, he
0: just took a vacation.
1: Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um, but yeah, that that actually caused a lot of harm within uh, within their private industry, within their private portion of the economy. And, and, you know, CCP tried to bring it back, you know, saying, oh, I forgive you, private tech companies. Oh, I forgive you, you know, Chinese economy for, you know, making me, you know, do these awful things to you. Please grow again, so I can have, you know, economic power, so I can have, uh, so I can increase Uh, make the economy better please and uh, obviously that has not worked so even go ahead
0: um so not not to go off on too much of a tangent but i do you think it's really an issue of g asserting too much control i mean because if you if you look at i guess the economic policies that come into play Uh, You know, during detente, right, when we're opening up trade with China, and then, you know, of course, after Mao's death, um, and, you know, subsequent chairman coming to office, they wanted to, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but they wanted to not assert as much control over the economy as Mao did, because I recognize maybe that wasn't the smartest idea. Do you think Xi is is controlling it too much? And that's why their growth has really been stifled?
1: Yeah, I mean... That's been an ongoing facet with Xi Jinping. Um they you've seen him consolidate power in in the military, the PLA, in the economy, even you know, the in, even in the Chinese Communist Party, with Hu um, Jintao being kicked out the way he the, the way that he did um, during um, where they renounced the. Uh, senior officials, the standing political, and that increased control is what's causing a lot of issues within China right now. And you can kind of see it in how Xi Jinping, you can see it economically, and how Xi Jinping, again, going back to how he Emphasizing the state-owned enterprises, how he wants to spread common prosperity throughout the uh, throughout China by going after these by going after the uh, private uh, private companies by making them uh, spread their wealth, if you will, and and preventing them from becoming too powerful. And so that's a that's another theme within Xi Jinping's quest for control and it worked out pretty well for him just because he wants total control
0: got it got it going back to this the summit that they had in alaska you think it's fair to say that that really um set the tone for how the relationship between the two countries has been ever since then
1: I wouldn't say that except the tone itself. It helped, but I would say what really set the tone, if you will, was Nancy Pelosi's August twenty second visit to Taiwan that added fuel to the fire. So I would view so this is how I would view it. I would view the Alaska meeting as like a little fire. It it caused some issues within the relationship. But not so much to where it's not so much to where you know we're at. It caused a lot of the issues that we're doing now. But I would say it. There was other issue. There was other events that caused the the relationship between China and the United States to get to where it's at now.
0: Okay. So so Alaska kind of annoyed them but Nancy Pelosi' is what really pissed them off
1: yes but then also just the mere just the fact that the United States one didn't really end the trade war and then not only that but also increased uh, the chip export and so that's the reason why they've it's became, it's got to where it's at right now. Not only that, but the United States states the uh, increased dialogue with Taiwan as well and encouraging other countries from at least from the Chinese point of view to do the same as well.
0: Do you think, um, you know, as far as Taiwan goes, some of the statements by by Biden when he's getting interviewed or whatever, and he says that, you know, he'll send, U.S. troops to Taiwan in the event that they're uh, invaded or, or blockaded or whatever. Do you think that that adds on to it as well?
1: It does, but it does to a certain point. But you have to understand that's the best kept secret within the Biden administration. I mean, I would classify Israel's alleged, quote unquote, nuclear program as the second worst kept secret. Um, both countries know uh, China knows that we will help Taiwan it's actually there's a law written and voted on and approved it was back in 1975 76 when we switched recognition from the Republic of China to the PRC
0: mm-hmm. and
1: so that was so, we're obligated to come to their aid, to their defense. Now, within that law, I forgot the law, the law's actual name, it's so vaguely worded that aid or defense means anything along the spectrum to include sending in troops, sending in ships, vessels, air, air, uh, air, airplanes, things like that, or military aid. It means anything within that. And so that you know, strategic ambiguity has been a defining aspect, or has been a defining feature within the Chinese relate the Chinese and U.S. relationship when talking about Taiwan.
0: Got it. I want to get into this uh, this visit that Lincoln did last week. What? what exactly was he trying to accomplish with this? I know me and you are both pretty much on the same page. Nothing was really going to come out of this, but what what was uh, the, I guess, the official narrative?
1: Well, officially he wanted wanted to convince the uh, Chinese, uh, the PLA to, uh, People's Liberation Army, PLA to reestablish the, Military communication, but with the Secretary of Defense and in those State Department. And also, this also established, reestablished communications with his counterparts as well, and the Secretary of, and the Secretary, and the Department of Defense, or Department of State, and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, respectively. Not only that, but I guess he wanted to also see how he elicits the Chinese reaction as well. Mm-hmm. Trying to see, like, try to get any, you know, just to see where they're at regarding trying to solve the overall relation.
0: Was he able to meet with the uh, the Chinese Minister of Defense?
1: Not from my understanding. He only met with um, he only met with he only met with Wang Yi, I believe, and Xi Jinping. And okay. so, so re- realistically, I mean, he can meet with the sec- uh, with the Minister of National Defense, but you know, honestly, that doesn't really mean that doesn't really mean anything. I mean, ultimately, it's Xi's decision on whether or not to open up. Those, uh, those communications again so it's like so talking to him would literally mean nothing
0: yeah got it do you think there was maybe some uh, elevated importance placed on this meeting uh, considering that the Minister of National Defense did not meet with Secretary of Defense Austin at the Shangri-La summit
1: yeah it, it, it was Everyone thought that, you know, if the Secretary of Defense and Defense Minister did meet, then, you know, maybe Blinken can convince them, you know, can get through to them as well. But honestly, that was like a shot, a shot in the dark, dark that was always going to miss just because the Chinese didn't want Blinken to go in the first place. He, they wanted, you know, someone from, you know, they wanted the Secretary of Commerce or the Treasury Secretary to go over there in the, in the beginning. And that, excuse me, and that goes back to China's ailing economy because they need to fix the economy. They don't really care what, they don't really care about, like, they don't really care about the defense ministry, about, you know, reconnecting military ties. They don't really care about connecting diplomacy. They don't really care. They just care about the economics. They're the, uh, trying to trying to increase those ties or reestablish those ties and straighten them, if you will, but in favor of China.
0: Yeah, just kind of like observing how things went. I'm sure you're a lot more locked into this than I am, but I was looking at the news and stuff and yeah, it definitely seemed like they were not um, eager to see him. I know like before he went there, obviously it was announced that lincoln is going to visit china right that's what the department of state was announcing and all this stuff and i think uh chinese officials would come out and be like well what so first we're hearing of it like what are you talking about what do you mean he's coming over here um and then when he got there there was like no like official welcoming committee for him or whatever and then there was like speculation as to whether or not he would meet with president xi and then after he met with president xi um like chinese officials were like oh well he granted an audience to secretary blinken and he didn't need to do that but he did it out of respect and blah 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 and all this stuff
1: so he met with uh so they're they're saying that blinken uh xi jinping met with blinken out of respect
0: yeah he granted him an audience
1: he didn't need say-
0: to do it but he did
1: I was saying he granted him an audience, but not out of respect. I mean, she. I mean, if you look at the uh, folk uh, photos from the actual meeting itself, and it, it compared to that from meetings that he had with Elon Musk and Bill Gates, it's night and day difference. Um, with Elon Musk and Gates, Xi Jinping sat right beside him as equals. And you know they were had their chairs angled towards each other, you know, just talking, talking. Just and they were just talking, like yeah, China. Uh, I believe Bill, she uh, actually called him an old friend of China. I believe uh, China's their friend. Mm-hmm. And contrast that with how Xi Jinping was uh, was sat versus the uh, versus she uh, versus Blinken and the rest and the uh, Chinese delegation as well. He sat in a U-shaped table at the head of it, almost like something you'll find at a high-end uh, Fortune 500 country, uh, company. And Blinken was right there at the head of the table, um, Adam looking directly at his counterpart, if I'm, not, if I'm not mistaken. I have to look back on the photo but he was at he was on the he was on the right side of she, but he was at the head of the table. He he was at the uh, he was closer to she. Whereas I believe Wang Yi was I think they I think the, the scrap said they were both looking at each other, uh you know, uh seated on the same uh seated on opposite sides of each other. And it was just that it was just that setting. just mm. just anyone could look at that and just realize that this meeting that he met with, he met with Lincoln not out of respect, but out uh, of, yeah, let's get this done. And not only that, but just the fact that he met with Lincoln could be used for propaganda for domestic signaling purposes.
0: Gotcha, Gotcha. So, how did this visit actually go? It was was anything really accomplished, or you know, maybe were relations improved, or is it is it pretty much just more of the same?
1: Not really. I mean, like people said that like the uh, uh relations increased. I was like, yeah. I mean, if you want to say that, I mean, it, now the foreign ministers. And sec- uh, foreign the foreign ministry and sec- and the, uh, the state department are talking quote unquote uh, if you won't really want to call it that again. I mean, other than that, the meeting really hasn't the meeting really didn't do anything much. Um, again, because the meeting was set to fail the moment they didn't send who they who the Chinese wanted. Mm-hmm. But not only that, but Xi Jinping and also has equal equal uh, stay in this. Well, more so than the United States, because they're coming to him to try to increase, or to, they're coming to China to try to thaw those relations. Whereas China's content with letting them sit where they're at, if it do- if it doesn't if it doesn't improve the situation.
0: Yeah, I mean, wh- one of the big things that was said uh, about Blinken's visit prior to him actually going was he wanted to improve relations with China, right, during this, this time of heightened tensions. I think it had been the first time in five years that, like, a cabinet-level official from the U.S. had visited Beijing, right? So, yeah. a- again, everybody was making it this big deal, Um And whatever, he has the meeting and and he talks to who he needs to talk to and then he comes home. And then President Biden gets interviewed about this. Uh, Actually, I can't remember if it it was an interview or if he was doing a press conference. I'm not sure. But um, yeah, he called Xi Jinping a dictator right after right after Anthony Blinken left China, which he's not wrong, right? But it's like, do you want to improve relations with China? Or do you want to call out Xi Jinping for what he is in front of the world? Because you can't do both at the same time.
1: Yeah, that's that's true. I mean, it was one of those things in which, you know, I think it was a slip of the tongue on Biden's part. We're going to use language less. left um, for language. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, I mean, he wasn't wrong. I mean, let's let's be honest with ourselves. He he wasn't wrong. Um, if you look at the word dictator in in the dictionary and how we use it in the English language, he was he, Xi being fits literally all the check boxes boxes of a dictator. There's no going back from it. There's no like, oh, well, it should be. There's no color. Quali- there's no like, over. There's no coloring. There's no gray area.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think there's there's definitely no doubt about Xi Jinping being a dictator for sure. Um, yeah. I, do you think those comments pretty much negated, Blinken's trip last week?
1: Not really. I mean, the. Not really. I mean, going back to my previous point, that it didn't really accomplish what it even wanted to set out to do. I mean, um, so sort of for me, the this, this term dictator is just for Biden to call Xi Jinping a dictator. Literally, it didn't really help the relationship, but it didn't really push the it didn't really cause relations to decrease or cause anything to happen, you know, any, like, any positive, if you want to call it that, from the meetings to go away or be negated. Um, but I will say that the reason why China actually, or at least the Chinese foreign ministry, jumped on them, uh, you know, they did a lot of the uh, rebuke the uh, rebuke Biden the way they did because is because they kind of know that Xi Jinping is a dictator. Not only that, but they know that. They have to nip it in. They have to, you know, push back or face retaliation by some sheep. Yeah, you well, can't.
0: You can't not respond.
1: Yeah, there, there was like, as soon as the word dictator left Biden's mouth, there was going to be a response. Just depending upon how, how bad it would be, depending upon the foreign ministry, and the others, and in the state and the uh, uh, media pieces.
0: Got it, got it. Well, I think that's pretty much all I had uh, as far as Blinken's trip goes, unless you had any other comments you want to make on that.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I kind of wanted to touch upon it, like um, his comment about the United States does not support Taiwan independence. Independent.
0: Oh, yeah, I forgot about that.
1: Yeah he, no, said I... it, yeah, he said it in Beijing. Um, That caused a lot of upwarish. And the United states media and, and amongst certain congressional members, um, Lincoln only said what was quote unquote official u s policy since really nineteen seventy nine or earlier mm-hmm. but definitely but definitely after Taiwan democratized. And the reason why you know he had he came out and said it is because of the fact that that's a red line for China. That's one of that's one of the, if, if anything involving Taiwan. Um, that you know Taiwan declaring independence and them getting them beginning or about or uh, attempting to get nuclear weapons as a red line for China, and they will, you know, invade or blockade the island until they stop that or they walk back from it.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. You really have to come out and say that you don't support Taiwan independence if you, if you want to have any sort of relationship with China.
1: Yeah, well, not only that, but then it was also signaling to the Taiwanese. Uh, political parties, so specifically the Democratic Progressive Party, especially their candidate uh, William Lai, or, uh, Lai Ch- uh, chinta he he actually made comments alluding to that he will declare Taiwan independent as an independent country in the past. And so now that he and now that you know, ironically enough, he's. At the moment, he still is the candidate favorite to win the election. If it was ever held today or during this month, he would win. And so I think that was also another thing. That was also another aspect of Blinken saying that, that, hey, we, is that the signal to the Taiwanese that you need to settle down and. Or not settle down, but you need to cool like cool it with the notions of independence because we all know what that would lead to. Nothing good.
0: Got it. Got it. Yeah, I'm glad you touched on that, man, because I actually forgot all about
1: that. Yeah, I it was one of those things in which as soon as I've seen it, And, you know, it was one of those things that, like, yeah, he's going to touch upon this. And I wonder how much hate mail he's going to receive whenever I say he wasn't wrong. Lincoln wasn't wrong. He actually stated U.S. foreign policy. And because, you know, ironically enough, China actually did say that at one point, that if uh, whenever I think we talked about this before, Taiwan actually was trying to develop or is in the really early stages of getting nuclear weapons or developing them. And China found out about this along at the same time, a little bit earlier than the United States. And China actually went up to the United States and said, This stop, tell them to stop this, or we will declare war, or we will invade and declare war. And, you know, that's whenever that's if I'm not mistaken, I believe that's also the meeting where they outline um, Taiwan uh any type of movement towards independence will be considered a red line that the Chinese will definitely cross.
0: That's fun.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so so it's one of those things in which uh, whenever people say, "Oh, well, we just handed," you know, Blinken just handed uh, Taiwan over to, Blink, uh, to China. It's, it's one of the things he, he's not. He didn't. He just stated U.S. policy.
0: Because. Yeah, and I mean, right? If even if you watch a video right after that, he says, "We do not, uh, or we oppose any changes to the status quo from either side." Right? We we want this resolved peacefully.
1: Exactly. Exactly, and that's the reason why he may mention of all the communiqués uh, statements. It's just illustrate that hey, we we do abide by them, but we also abide by the state uh, the communiqués that we produce, you know, Mhm. Yeah. Such as yeah.
0: And as and as secretary of state, even if. Even if, let's say, Blinken does personally support the independence of Taiwan, he cannot come out and say that in his capacity as Secretary of State. No, he got to. You got to speak to official U.S. policy. Exactly. Okay. Well, good stuff, man. Uh, I think I'm ready to move on to the next topic. If you are. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we wanted to talk about Chinese. Influence operations in the Pacific, and I know you particularly wanted to focus on Okinawa.
1: Yeah, um, the reason why I wanted to focus upon Okinawa is because this, is, well, specifically Okinawa, is because I've made a post about this. It's going to be a two-part. Uh, is going to be a two-part one. Um, the first part showed how the uh, the external fact uh, influence with Xi Jinping making comments that alluding to uh, the Ryukyu Kingdom close ties or relationship with then Ming China, and that they actually have sailors live in, uh, live on uh, Okinawa, specifically in Naha. And so for, them, for him to come out and say that now in 2023, It's very weird because the same, some of the same things were said in 2000,
0: 2013. Interesting. So is there, is there a feeling among some people and I guess the, the Japanese, um, I don't know cabinet or high high levels of government or whatever you want to say. Is there a feeling that China could make moves on Okinawa?
1: You you have to understand is whenever they try to this has been a common theme with uh, with two thousand with the two thousand thirteen issue uh, during two thousand thirteen and two thousand twenty three is that they are signaling to increased pressure on Taiwan over to Senkaku. And the reason why is because if you look at the 2013 um, opinion piece, quote unquote, by the two authors or by the two historians, they tied to the Senkaku's issue for the Dayu, if you want to call them by the Chinese name, to the treaties of Sermiseki that ended the Sino-Japanese War of 1895. Or, uh not 1895. Um, yeah, no, no, it, it wasn't 1895. Um, and and in favor of Japan, and that caused a lot of issues with uh, with China, with then Qing Dynasty China, because it was the first time that a Asian power defeated, totally defeated. China on equal footing. In many ways a lot of people thought that China was gonna win because they had more ships, more soldiers, um, better you know, somewhat better logistics. But all honesty, Japan was better trained and better led. And that's the reason why they why they won. And they utilized better tactics. Okay. And so, oh, sorry. No, I was gonna say But, and then, but for now, but in 2023, they, they tied it direct, she tied it directly to China. And so for him, I think he's trying to connect. He's also trying to connect the Ryukus to China directly now in 2020. And, and with his comments that she, uh, the Ryukus kingdom and, China had a had a close, deep relationship, but honestly, that's just historical because, yeah, the Ryukyu Kingdom was a vassal state of China. They didn't really own it outright. <laughs>
0: okay and i'm not super familiar with the uh, the first sino you know, japanese war what role did okinawa play in that?
1: well you have to understand the uh... Uh, the role that Japan, the the role that Okinawa played was the uh, the, the Japanese, uh, not the Japanese, but the Chinese. They seen how Japan took over Okinawa in 19 in 1879, and so they made it a kingdom. They made it, a, you know, a prefecture, Okinawa Prefecture. And so the whole prelude to the to the sino japanese war was a group of Taiwanese killed some Weyukurin or Okinawan sailors. And so, in many ways, those Okinawan sailors Started the sino, sino uh, the sino, uh, chinese uh, the japanese War. Not only that, but they felt I think again going back to uh, the Ryukyu Kingdom being a vassal state of China, they literally took them over and became and absorbed Okinawa into Japan. And they whenever China wanted, you know, their vassal pay. Japan said no. It's Japanese land now. We don't uh, the Ryukus don't have to pay you anything.
0: How long was the Ryuku kingdom a vassal state of China?
1: Man, it's centuries. Uh three to four centuries to be to be exact. It was a really long time. It was during when China was arguably at its strongest during the Ming during the Ming Dynasty, and then not only that, but then part of the Qing Dynasty as well. And then you started then you started to see that slow decline of Qing Dynasty China beginning in the early to mid 1800s with the onset of the Hundred Years of Humiliation
0: okay does the first you know japanese war does that play into the hundred years of humiliation
1: oh yeah most definitely um you have to, again going back to it you know it was the first time when china was defeated by a asian an asian power because before it was just you know england france russia um Germany, you know, um, there was another one. You know, they went in, they fought the wars with them, or they forced uh, they forced China to take over or to give the hand over the land, like in the case of Russia did. Um and so they they so they thought, you know, okay, the barbarians are able to take this, are able to push us around. But with, the, but with Japan, they can't do that because even though they're inferior to us, because, you know, xenophobia, they are considered, they are, you know, quote unquote, Asian brothers, but inferior. Think of it as like, think of it as uh, Amazon and Wish, if you will. <laughs> Amazon being China and Wish being Japan.
0: Okay, I guess I should have asked you this before, but could you, for those that don't know, could you just explain real quick what the Hundred Years of Humiliation is?
1: Yeah, so the Hundred Years of Humiliation was a period of time when when Qing Dynasty China saw its terminal decline, or started its terminal decline, and accelerated, and so. It started around 1849, give or take a couple of years, but, defen- but, def- but definitely ended in 1949 with the proclamation of the People's Republic of China. But during, the, during that time, China was really, in a sense, colonized by outside European powers. They were able to carve up their, they were able to carve up either Fears of influence or outright colonies in the in the case of in the case of Russia, in the case of Germany, Britain as well. And did they include France, Portugal in that with Macau? No, it um, Macau Macau and well Macau's different because Portugal signed it over, but uh, China signed it over to the Portuguese in 18, or not 18, but in like 16 or 15 hundred. Oh wow. Yeah. So uh, so back back whenever the Asia exploration really took off and people were actually going to East Asia. And so um, and so they're in this time he had all these countries going in and literally taking and colonizing China, the Qing dynasty China. And really, the Qing couldn't do much about it. Every time they tried to fight China, every time they tried to fight the European powers, they would lose. They tried to do it. The the pre-ultimate one was the Boxer Rebellion when the when the uh, dower's or emperors initially sided with the Qing or with the boxers to try to get the Westerners out, the Western barbarians out, if you will. But it failed because I believe the United Kingdom and its ally and and its sovereign realm, the Italians, the French, Germans, Austro-Hungarians, Russians, uh, the United States, um, the Dutch, the Portuguese, I believe, they all sent in a few thousand troops each. and in, J- in Japan, actually, did join them as well, and that will kind of also added a lot of insult to injury. And um, they all went in to. Save as many Westerners as possible. And they actually um, defeated not only the boxers, but made the uh, Qing Dynasty court flee to Xi'an in Western China. And then after it was said and done, the Western powers said, they they all collectively said that we're not. We're not only going to make you pay indemnities for all the people you killed, or the people, or the de- properties and factories that were destroyed in even in, in the rebellion, but we're going to station actual officials in the Qing Dynasty court, so you can be quote unquote advised on how to run your affairs. And you can't obviously, since you obviously can't do that. And we're going to station troops in in Beijing to protect our concessions. Not only that, but we're gonna expand our concessions and put troops in there too to protect it as well. And so just the indemnity that they had that they were forced to repay a loan marked the death, death nail of the Qing dynasty. They just couldn't pay it.
0: How much does the hundred years of humiliation play into Chinese policy today?
1: Particularly a lot foreign since, policy? A lot since Xi Jinping as a believer in Chinese superiority, if you will, I guess is the best way to put it. Um he really uses that as a way to produce a lot of his foreign policy. You you see it in the way and how he's, in a weird way, he, he thinks that he can avenge uh, the Treaty of Sensei-Museki and the First Sino-Japanese War by making China give back Okinawa or at least give them the the premise of the choice, if you will. But not only that, but they, but not only that, but just the mere fact of them trying to export now, they're trying to export the global security initiative, global development, global modernization initiative, and the new legal system. You see them trying to, you see trying to re obtain or restore balance in the world as he sees it to by creating by showing by uh, by making China's by regaining China's rightful place.
0: So what in, what exactly does he want or expect to accomplish in Okinawa does he does he want it to return to China's sphere of influence does he just want to annoy the Japanese
1: well it's a little bit of both he would prefer Okinawa to be independent and have and to lean very heavily into um, into them China but he also knows that he can create enough unrest uh, amongst the um the local population to make uh, U.S. and uh, Japanese operations there extremely difficult. And sadly enough, um, the United States military actually kind of helps with that because every time there's an incident, a Liberty incident, or you know, or a violence towards uh, local Japanese. Uh, Local Okinawan population by U.S. Marine or U.S. Army member or U.S. Air Force member. That just adds. That just gives she more ammunition, if you will.
0: Yeah, uh, for those that are listening, uh if you're in Okinawa, think twice before you go out and like get a DUI or you know run somebody over or something like that because it, it really has larger implications than what you can imagine it it goes well beyond your unit and the uh, base commander
1: exactly and um not only that but just geopolitically as well um mm-hmm. a lot of people you know i don't know if a lot of people don't really understand this or you know are realistically ignorant of this but okay now is prime real estate to not only the United States and Japan, but also China. They understand the significance of Okinawa and the facilities there. So, for so if people you know are saying, "Oh, we're well, not going to get hit," or we, or you know, we don't know if uh, we don't even know if Okinawa is going to be hit. Let's let's be honest with ourselves. Okinawa is going to take the brunt of any strike the Chinese will take when or if, if they invade Taiwan or, or if there is a conflict between the United States and China in the future. Not only that, but just the mere fact that it's Okina- uh, Okinawa is a, uh, it's a Japanese-owned possessed island. The Japanese will get involved, too because a lot of people don't understand is that those bases, the land on it, that our bases are built on, are owned by either the Japanese government, right? Or by Japanese private owners. A lot of people don't understand, don't know that and don't understand that. And so you have to understand that Okinawa, it's gonna get hit. (laughs) How much depends upon a lot of factors, though.
0: Yeah, uh, I mean, in the event that there is a conflict between, you know, whether it's China and the U.S. or China and Japan or, you know, all three countries, Okinawa is is strategic real estate for sure. Um, And again, to those of you that are listening, and if you happen to be in Okinawa or heading that way, uh, it would serve you to not piss off the natives.
1: Yeah, it's one of those things in which I understand. Um, it's a life at the life in the uh, you're on base, or you're you're on, you know, you're on Okinawa. Um, you don't know the language, you don't know, you can't really drive, you can't really get anywhere. You need people, you know, you need to have like a group to go out, but honestly, if you're able to go out, that's actually one of the better places to be stationed at. I mean, let's let's be honest with ourselves, which which one would you rather be stationed at, you know, a tropical beach with easy access to um, beaches and the beaches are really nice or uh, 29 pounds?
0: yeah exactly don't forget all the history in okinawa too i mean even just during world war ii i mean especially if you're a marine listening to this uh the marine corps like the marine corps ties to okinawa it's they're immense there's so much history there
1: exactly if you're, like, if you're
0: able to see that like you're incredibly lucky because i never got to go to okinawa i wish i i could go there and and see all those historic battlefields and and get immersed in all that, but I never had the opportunity. So if you do, um, definitely take advantage of it.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very interesting to see the actual landing site of the invasion, It's very interesting to see it, to be able to say that, you know, you're on the beach and like looking out and like, this is where, you know, X number 80 years ago, I believe at this point, this is where, um, our forefathers, if you will. Invaded,
0: uh, landed at yeah it's like and I mean 80 years uh, in the grand scheme of things that's really nothing
1: mm-hmm.
0: so yeah it's that's pretty crazy I really hope I could go see that
1: someday yeah it's, it's, a, it's a very moving experience if you're one a marine but then also if you're if you understand history as well yeah I yeah, love I history. yeah but now like for so the Ryukus, there's always been outside and in uh, internal groups that would like to format, um that like to cause a lot of stink, if you will, within the local population by using those incidents. Between you know U.S. military members and Okinawan and the Okinawan population as triggers. Xi Jinping knows this, and that's the reason why, um, especially back in 2013, when you know one the Ryukyu Islands uh, was mentioned. But not only that, but in 2013, you have to understand, you literally had one liberty incident after the other it was almost like we had a joint operation going on because I believe every single branch of the service, every single branch of the U S military to include the coast guard had someone involved in a Liberty incident.
0: Yeah. I think it locked down to the base, like all the time for like months on end.
1: Yeah. They, we, uh, we, uh, back in 2013, I was actually there. Okay. And, and, um, and um, yeah, I could say that that was an absolutely miserable time to be a Marine Okinawa. Not only that, but just the mere fact that the local Okinawan population suffer or the economy, if I should say, suffered as well. Because a lot of it was geared towards U.S. Uh, U- military members spending their money out in town. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, not only that, but you actually did see a lot of uh, organizations actually trying to attract local Okinawan pop- uh, politicians to either to either to uh, either back to take them to China, host seminars with them, or coming to Okinawa and holding seminars with them there. And so that's another aspect of Chinese influence, especially in Okinawa, to utilize these forums or you know symposiums or seminars as a way to gain influence and leverage over the over the pop over the politicians.
0: Toad, so, what effect do you think those those Chinese influence operations are actually having in Okinawa. Are they are they moving the goalpost in you know Xi Jinping's direction?
1: I don't think they really worked. Because there hasn't really been a consistent outcry for independence or a larger call for independence or, you know, increase, uh, increase autonomy or for or for um, or for or uh, the Ryukus to increase ties with, or for Okinawa to increase ties with uh, China. But the concern is now is since China actually has a precedent with trying to tie Okinawa to the Treaty of the via the Treaty of the to the to the Senkakus, they can argue now that the Senkakus, by by virtue of Okinawa being um, in control of the Senkakus there when the uh, treaty was signed, any whoever owns the Senkakus or gets told that the Senkakus is theirs, rightfully could claim that could claim Okinawa. Or at least from the Chinese uh, standpoint.
0: Okay, what other influence operations does China have in in like the general vicinity?
1: Uh, uh, they have a lot of influence operations in China or in China, uh, in Taiwan proper. They utilize that through a lot of. Uh, Different entities, the triads, and other major criminal organizations, the various quote-unquote associations that exist throughout Taiwan to increase understanding and cooperation with China um, also plays a hand in as well. Um, the same thing could be said in the Philippines as well there's a large, what a lot of people don't understand about the Philippines is that there's a large ancestral Chinese uh, population there. It's been there since the time the Spanish conquered the Philippines, actually. And so they've been there for centuries, and they understand how the Philippines works. And Xi Jinping utilizes that to his or the ccp utilize that to their advantage when they're trying to increase influence amongst the filipino population within the Philippines within the country and so that's the reason why you see a lot of joint events as well within not only metro manila but you know maybe Cebu city and palau palau and palau ironically enough because it's so close because Sits directly on the South China Sea and other major uh, cities throughout um, throughout the Philippines, is to ca- try to increase and influence Chinese. Uh, just to try to increase in China, Chinese uh, soft power within the Philippines, but then also try to influence Filipino foreign policy as well through the uh, through the through those Filipino-Chinese uh, politicians. And then I, I made a post about this in Thailand, about about this sometime last week. The There's a really strong uh, Chinese presence slash in, in, uh, influence operations in, in the country. And you can see that, especially now with, there is one organization or association, the Thai Canal Association increasing push to try to have that and try to um, get uh, the Thai government's approval to build a Thai or cry uh, canal. And the and that association in particular, Actually, has a lot of Chinese ties, business ties, and that's who actually is funding a lot of the money to invest into the potential project. And some of the actual members that said this in uh, Thai media. What's going on with that
0: canal? Because I I know you wanted to talk about that at some point. What's the general situation with that?
1: Well, see, you have uh, the Thai canal has always existed in some form since the late seventeenth century. The reason why it hasn't been built there at a time is because of technology. But now, just because, but you know, as technology evolved and they were able to overcome that, now it's more along the lines of the potential ratification to not only the population, but the local uh, ecosystem as well, because they don't know, because the government doesn't know or there hasn't really been a objective study completed that shows that the canal is going to be a good thing. And that's where the Thai Canal Association kind of came in in recent years Ever since at least 2015, if not 2017, because again going back to my earlier point, they were bankrolled by Chinese investors that uh, would want to see this canal built. And you know they did these studies, they did lobbying, labral- uh, not only in Bangkok but in the local pop- but in the local population, uh, but in the local area to try to influence people to say that hey we want this uh, we want this canal to be built. And the last time the canal the the Thai government Act or the Thai uh, House of uh, Representatives uh, came together to vote on the actual to to actually approve a long-term study in February 2022 it fell because the two, uh, because the two parties, the move on party, but also the Fu Thai party as well, they couldn't agree on, they rejected it due to different reasons and they rejected it, some might say as, um, and some might say butted head as well. And so I bring up those two political parties because those are the two main winners of the recent Thai Thai election. So the Thai so in many ways we may not see the Thai canal built at least now because one they need to vote on a long-term study, but the coalition government that will be made up of the move on and the few Thai political parties will likely not agree on the type um, on to approve the type of the the project
0: okay and it's my understanding that the Thai canal the main purpose of that would be to uh, basically get to the Indian Ocean uh, bypassing the Strait of Malacca is that correct
1: and that would worry the. It worries, you know. I'll show you United States and Great Britain. The Oconus, you know, the uh, the, OCONUS, the Oconus powers. I think it would grant uh, China greater ability to move around. But not only that, but uh, India as well, because it will. It will enable them to essentially move into the Indian Ocean in a shorter time frame. So they're going to spend more time there on station, sailing around the yeah, Indian Ocean. But then also, you could potentially see the you could potentially see China owning do use um, dual use facilities like they did in Djibouti. Or it, or taking over a lot of the port infrastructure, like they did in Sri Lanka, so that those, um, so that those ships could potentially use them as refueling or, um, waypoint, refueling stations a waypoint. So they can, so you can come back and refuel, um, and reprovision and go back out on the Indian Ocean again.
0: Yeah, I mean, just, just looking at a map here, it, it looks like, again, in the event that the U.S. and China got in into an armed conflict, right? And if that happened, obviously there would be a huge naval component to it as well. Just looking at a map here, it looks like, you know, the Strait of Malacca, and if it were to happen, uh, the Thai Canal would be... Mm-hmm major strategic waterways.
1: Yes, in which, ironically enough, we control the Strait of Malacca, or de facto, we control it, because of our little uh, facility in Singapore. But in the event that China actually, or uh, on the event that uh, Thailand actually builds this canal, that would prevent, thats a—that could potentially allow China to have an act uh, a, a way to the Indian Ocean that it controls.
0: Interesting. We got to get some of the lethal minds guys together and talk about this because I think that would be a pretty interesting topic. It would be. And so I last thing I wanted to ask you about was going back to influence operations in the Philippines. I know for the journal, me and you have talked about uh, the new Filipino president, President Marcos. Do we have any uh, idea now that he's been in office for a few months what his relationship with China is going to be like?
1: Yep, we do. Uh, He doesn't really... It's on a rock. It's rocky. He doesn't really trust the Chinese because um, he's seen how he's seen what they did during the the during the uh administration. But not only that, but uh, they, he, also seen how they've, he also seen how they he also seen how they. He also seen how they were act, uh, how they actively pushed, uh, did uh, aggressive action against Thailand, uh, against the Philippines when he first came into office, his first, I believe, six months. And so, for him, he he came to understand that we need the United States, we need Europe, uh, Australia, we need Japan help to. To help us you know increase our defense. not only that, but he also understands that the Philippines cannot be beholden to China economically. It just can't be because during the uh, during the Durarte administration you kind of did see that in some aspects that China was actually able to influence the Philippine the Filipinos actions. Via via economic via uh, economic influence, and so that's the reason why throughout came to that conclusion that I need to reach out to the United States. I need to reach out to all these to other people, just because of the fact that China has been doing all these things to us, has been pushing back against our uh, against us in the in the South China Sea. Has been conducting these dangerous operations, flybys, almost ramming uh, several Philippine coast guard vessels, sh- shining a laser at the at the bridge of one, temporarily blinding the crew that was in that was inside the cabin uh, inside the bridge. And so he came to understand that China is not our friend. That it isn't his friend. In many ways, he probably thinks it's the enemy. But on the flip side, he also understands that he can't really solely um, rely on the United States because one of the domestic optics. Because, you know, Marcos is the dad of Ferdinand Marcos. Is, uh the former dictator of the Philippines. And while the United States and had a close relationship uh, with the Marcos regime. It also caused a lot of suffering, a lot of negative perceptions about the Filip- uh, about the United States, persuade the uh, persuade the Filipino population at that time, because in many ways we were helping them prop up his power in the Philippines.
0: So I know, switching gears here a little bit, I guess. I know there were some recent exercises between Filipino forces, U.S. forces, and uh, I want to say the Japanese Navy in the Pacific. Are, are those significant in any way, or are those kind of just routine and and not really that big of a deal?
1: So the exercises are with were with uh, the Philippines and and the and Japan or uh i I want to say
0: it was the Philippines the u s and Japan
1: yeah um that was significant because um I want to say Australia was in there too because it took place in the South China Sea, and that was the first time that the um uh, that's the that type of exercise can was ever occurred um, but that actually came as part of the Filipinos insistence on one of those on those types of exercises to occur and it goes back to my earlier point the fact that the Philippines knows that it needs outside powers like the Japanese like the Philippines uh, like the like the like Australia and like the United States to help them because this is the weird thing about China it likes it likes to deal with countries unilaterally, but it hates dealing with groups or alliances or forms in any uh, in any fashion. It hates them, and it's because one he it, it's for one China understands that when a, when several nations band together, it's harder to. Push back against them, or to get them to do what you want. But it also knows that China. It also knows that any influence operation that it can conduct to try to, you know, put, drive them drive them apart is much harder to do. And which now, now this is not to say. In Syria, should say, because you know he, they, Xi Jinping done a done an ex or China I to say, done an excellent job during the and uh, how it handled the ASEAN, how it handled ASEAN, done a phenomenal job and uh, effectively watering down uh, and toning down a lot of the a lot of their uh, a lot of the directives they wanted to put out, especially in the South China Sea. Regarding the South China Sea.
0: Well, man, I think that's um, that's pretty much all I got. Um, Unless you have any closing remarks.
1: No, I don't have any closing remarks. Um, yeah, uh, this part two of the Senkaku's Influence operations, Chinese influence operations, going to be hopefully completed in not too distant future, and then also like some other articles that people will find it really interesting as well.
0: Okay, yeah. What what else you got coming up for Lethal Minds or on your own substack?
1: Yeah, so in addition to, well, I have a lot of stuff going going on with the Lethal Minds. Um, to the um, Taiwan invasion series, or at least the notion one, like showing how what it would take for the PLA to conduct one, and how and what they might uh, and what uh, and and how they can how they can conduct it. Um, the next one is going to be the logistical aspect of it, and with that's probably going to be three parts because um, I'll be I'll have to talk about you know the units involved. The actual deployment on D-Day, if you will, and then also logistical sustainment, what it would look, what it would look like, if you will. And then not only that, but I also have an article being written right now about leadership books appearing in some units of the PLA that says how uh, that that mentions how both commissions and NCOs commission officers and NCOs how they should act and how they should lead and what would be the best way to do it.
0: Yeah, when uh, whenever you're done with that Taiwan invasion series, we definitely need to bring you back on and just have a discussion about that because I think that would be pretty interesting too.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's uh, the Taiwan, I mean, I know this has been an ongoing project for this year, but honestly, it's one of those things in which it's very... It's a very complicated subject. You can't really talk about it in like one paper. Mm -hmm. It has to be most, you have to break it down into an individual component. And I think the one, the one place or the one paper that most people will find, or most will find exciting is the Notional Battle of Kaohsiung. What is that? Uh, the notional battle of Kaohsiung. So the final paper is going to be is going to be me writing about a how a battle for the city of Kaoshan would look like. What units will be involved? Likely be involved. Um, how the PLA would try to take it. Would it? Would they try to stall them out, or would they try to rushify it? Aka back mode, mode. <laughs> yeah, so it will be very interesting, and so it's that that paper is probably going to be very exciting to most audiences, and ironically enough, the most challenging challenging to write because a lot of it's, it's going to be guesswork, and then also on the part of the PLA tactics they can, they would probably use, but then also what
0: units will be involved as well? Okay, yeah, I, I'm definitely going to keep my eyes open for that because I'm excited to read that one.
1: Thank you. It's going to be uh, that one, should, that one should be very interesting to write.
0: Yeah, yeah, that will be good for sure. Um, well, man, you want to uh shout out any social medias or sub stack or or anything else before uh, we get going here?
1: Yeah. So, uh, if you want to find more of, uh, uh, more of the subjects that I talk about or more of my commentary, go ahead. Um, have a sub, both an Instagram and Substack, uh, Talk. Um, also write extensively for the bulletin. I'm the specific desk chief as well. So I also write there a lot of stuff about the specific that not many people are writing about, but people should be aware of.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, you've been pushing stuff on the bulletin, I mean, a lot, really these past few months, and yeah, I think you've really helped us grow a lot and we all really appreciate your work.
1: No, thank you.
0: Well, good stuff, man. Um, Yeah, I think that's all I got for you. Cool. Well, everybody, thank you very much for listening to this. Uh, We're going to have Sino Talk again at some point, I'm sure, because there's a plethora of things we could talk about. But we'll see you guys then. Okay, everybody, thank you again for listening to that episode. I hope you all really enjoyed it. I really like having Sino Talk on here because he he really knows his stuff when it comes to China. And we'll be looking at having him on more often because there's plenty of things we could talk about. Again, thank you for supporting this podcast. Of course, it means a lot to me. You could find this podcast on your favorite apps, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze, Educate, all one word. We're also on Threads at the same at, and we're also on Telegram, Analyze, and Educate. It is the and symbol, not and spelled out. Also, please consider supporting us again on Patreon at patreon.com analyzeeducate or at ko-fi at ko-fi.com slash analyzeeducate. Be sure to leave us a five-star rating on the app you use to listen to this podcast. That helps us out a lot as well. And that is all I have for you guys right now. We'll see you soon.